Hello, everyone. It's Eves checking in here to let you know that you're going to be hearing two different events in history in this episode. They're both good, if I do say so myself. On with the show. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was February 16th, 1959. Communist revolutionary Fidel Castro was sworn in as the prime minister of Cuba in the cabinet room of the presidential palace in Havana. At 32 years old, Castro had become the country's youngest ever prime minister. Castro was born in southeastern Cuba, the son of a domestic servant and wealthy sugarcane farmer. Castro got involved in politics early. While he was attending law school at the University of Havana, he joined a group of Dominican exiles and Cubans who tried, unsuccessfully, to invade the Dominican Republic and overthrow its dictator, Rafael Trujillo. In April of 1948, Castro joined riots that started in Bogota, Colombia, after a populist Colombian presidential candidate was shot dead. After Castro graduated from law school in 1950, he started practicing law. And he joined the reformist Cuban People's Party, also known as the Orthodox Party, a party that was anti-corruption and anti-imperialism. Castro identified with the party's campaign, and in 1952, he became a candidate for a seat in the Cuban House of Representatives for the Cuban People's Party. The party was expected to win the election, but in March, former Cuban President General Fulgencio Batista seized control of Cuba in a coup during the campaign. So in 1953, Castro decided to lead his own uprising to bring the Cuban People's Party to power. On July 26, he and a group of more than 100 people attacked the Moncada Army Barracks in Santiago de Cuba. The plan was to get weapons and announce the revolution. But the offensive failed. More than half of the rebels were captured and killed, and Castro was arrested and sentenced to 15 years in prison. But Castro's popularity was rising, and his revolution was gaining support. Batista ordered Castro and his brother Raul to be released from prison in 1955 as part of a general amnesty. But Fidel and Raul soon left for Mexico, where they linked up with Marxist revolutionary and guerrilla leader Che Guevara. There, they began planning another attempt to overthrow the Cuban government and enlisting recruits to organize what became known as the 26th of July movement. The movement promised land reform, nationalization of public services, and honest elections, among other reforms. But when Castro and nearly 100 people landed on the coast of Cuba in December of 1956, government forces killed or captured nearly everyone. Less than 20 people survived, but those who did fled to the Sierra Maestra mountains with barely any supplies. But they soon built up their weapons stockpile and were attracting volunteers who supported Castro and opposed Batista's United States-supported regime. A guerrilla war had begun. 
As Bautista's forces committed more and more violent acts to get info about the guerrillas, and high-profile groups began to back Castro, Castro's movement grew stronger. His army won a series of victories over Batista's government, even though they were outnumbered. Even after the U.S. sent Batista planes, ships, and tanks, the guerrillas held their ground. Some military units even joined the guerrillas. So Batista tried in desperation to hold an election, but people didn't show up to vote. Castro was charismatic, and his propaganda proved effective. Castro's forces moved in on the cities, and Bautista fled to the Dominican Republic on January 1, 1959. Castro became commander-in-chief of Cuba's armed forces. Once Castro took over as prime minister, replacing José Miroel Cardona, he persecuted people in Bautista's old regime for war crimes, expanded social services, redistributed land among peasants, and abolished race-based segregation and facilities. He also suppressed oppositional press, arrested counter-revolutionaries, cracked down on what he considered moral wrongs, and adopted a one-party state. Castro, who died in 2016, would go on to become a controversial political figure who was a hero to many and a vile dictator to many others. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Tune in tomorrow for another day in history. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was February 16, 1953. A team of scientists at the Swedish electrical company ASEA made the first synthetic diamond crystals. Diamonds have been used for adornment for thousands of years, and they've been valued as gemstones for jewelry for more than a hundred years. In the late 19th century, some scientists claimed that they had succeeded at making diamonds. Scottish chemist James Ballantyne Hannay, for instance, said that he made diamonds by sealing organic materials with lithium into iron tubes and heating them to red heat. And French chemist Henri Moisson tried to create synthetic diamonds by putting a crucible containing pure carbon and iron in an electric furnace. He then put that super hot mixture into water, and the pressure generated by the sudden cooling supposedly resulted in diamonds. But none of the experiments were reproducible, and the resulting materials were likely not even synthetic diamonds. Though attempts to make synthetic diamonds continued through the early 1900s, they were unsuccessful. The structure of diamonds was difficult to reproduce because it required extremely high pressure and high temperature. But American physicist Percy Williams Bridgman was doing extensive research into the effects of high pressures on materials. He got the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1946 for his work in the field of high-pressure physics. But in 1941, the Carborundum Company, Norton Company, and General Electric entered into an agreement with Bridgman to research diamond synthesis. 
But this research lasted for less than two years, as World War II was in full swing. In these experiments, though, graphite at nearly half a million PSI was heated by a thermite reaction to 3,000 degrees Celsius or 5,500 degrees Fahrenheit. But by 1950, General Electric had begun looking back into the question of diamond synthesis. Physicists, physical chemists, and engineers began researching the chemistry of the process as well as the apparatus needed for getting the high pressures and temperatures required. At the same time, the Swedish electrical company ASEA was working on making diamonds in the lab. ASEA turned to a scientist named Baltzar von Platten to look into diamond synthesis. The company hired a team of scientists led by Eric Lundblad to work on the project known as Quintus. For years, the team experimented with different strategies to create synthetic diamonds. But on February 16, 1953, Lundblad subjected a mixture of iron carbide and graphite to pressure for an hour. The press they used had six pyramid-shaped anvils that formed a sphere around the sample of graphite. After the experiment was over, a few small diamond crystals the size of grains of sand were produced. But ASCA did not announce or publish the experiment's results. In December of 1954, the team at General Electric produced synthetic diamonds and reproduced the results. The next year, GE announced that its scientists had successfully created synthetic diamonds. It's not completely clear why ASEA did not report its results, but it is clear that the technique Quintus used was difficult to reproduce. It was also too slow and expensive to be commercially viable, considering the experiment produced very tiny diamonds that were not of gem quality. Since the mid-1900s, plenty of synthetic gem-quality diamond crystals have been produced in labs using high-pressure and high-temperature methods, chemical vapor deposition, and other techniques. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can find us on social media at TDIHC Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Email still works. Send us a note at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.